For, for all of you guys who are here today and moms, we, we celebrate you, we honor you. As Ryan sort of mentioned, we also acknowledge, you know, that this is a, it's a tough day. It's a tough day for those of us uh, out there in the crowd who have lost a parent. Our prayer for you is that you'll be able to remember your mom today with fondness. For those who struggle with infertility or the loss of a child, I know that today is especially difficult. And we are praying for your peace and your comfort. But for those of you in here who are watching at home, uh, who are mothers, man, I cannot, I cannot say thank you enough for the way that you love children, your children, and then as adults, you continue to love us as we're big children, right? And there's this proverb, I was reading it this week, I pulled it up here, let me see if I can get it on my phone, Proverbs 1.8, here's what it says, it says, my child, listen when your father corrects you, we'll talk to you dads later another time, but don't neglect your mother's instructions, what you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. Translation, the David translation is, you better listen to your mamas. All right, if you listen to your mothers, it's amazing. Uh, the, the amazing wisdom advice that they have, moms, your selflessness, your grace as you lead and teach us what it looks like to follow Jesus is unbelievable. My mom is here this morning. She's She's back watching children, little kids. My mother is such a source of encouragement in my life, a relationship of peace. And I know that motherhood is often such a thankless job. We don't do a great job as your spouses, as your kids, thanking you guys. And so today you might want to shun that spotlight because I know you're not used to it. But man, let us love you today. Soak it in. All the admiration, the appreciation, the gifts, moms, you deserve it. You really do. For every soccer practice, for every band recital and rehearsal, uh, you guys deserve that. You hear this verse all the time at weddings, but I, th I think of this, believe it or not, I think of a, a mother's love when I read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It says that love is patient and kind. Anybody know their mom's love like that? Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And love never ends. And so I want to encourage you guys right now, Let's stand and let's appreciate the moms that bear with us, that endure with us, that love us, and that their love never ends. Let's honor them right now. If your mom is in here, give them a hug. Take a minute. They deserve it. I see some hugs across the room. Thank you, moms. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, 1 Corinthians Three is not our passage for today. We're actually going to be in Colossians chapter one. We're continuing on with our series. It's called Jesus Is. And so uh, it's sort of been a little bit slow going so far, um, especially these last two verses have taken a really long time. It's some heavy, deep theological stuff, hasn't it? Um, but today we're going to start to speed up a little bit and chapters one and two are going to actually take up the bulk of our time. Three and four will go a lot quicker. So today we're actually covering six verses, verses 18 through 23 
in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to kind of do it uh, one section at a time. So right now we're going to read Colossians 1.18. It's up on the screen. If you've got your notes out, um, get ready. And he, he being Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I have to read things twice. So we're going to read that just one more time. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In January of 1967, a man died out in California. His name was uh, Dr. James Bedford. And he was a psychology professor at the University of California. Now, as per his last wishes, James, he wasn't buried. He wasn't cremated. His body was packed in ice. His organs were pumped full of antifreeze. And he became the first in now what is a more and growing more popular uh, long list of people who choose at death to be cryogenically frozen instead of buried. And the hope for James, he's a big sci-fi fan, the hope was that technology and science would advance to the point at which someday they can unfreeze and thaw out his body and he would be resurrected. It's kind of an interesting idea. And a lot of people are actually jumping on this bandwagon, but it's expensive to keep a body frozen for 50 plus years. And if you think about uh, James somewhere right now in some basement, we are no closer now than we were 50 years ago to being able to resurrect this guy. And it's expensive. And so people have stopped actually freezing their whole body and now they're just freezing their heads which is kind of wild when you think about it. But if, if science and technology advance to the place where you can be resurrected, I mean, why can't they make you a new body too? Now, we as Christians and as followers of Christ, you know, we know that this is misguided. That after we die, we face judgment and, and we stand before God. But these people that are placing so much misguided faith in technology and science, they do have one thing right. They understand the importance of the head to the body. Out of all the things to freeze, I got to give it to them. The head's the right call. Nobody is out there freezing their ankle and putting it on ice and hoping that someday they'll be resurrected. It's not like, hey, create a little space. I'm going to freeze my elbow just in case I can be brought back from the dead. We know instinctively the importance of the head to the body. And so when Paul refers to Jesus in this passage of Colossians chapter 1, he is referring to Christ not as part of the body. He says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. You'll read that all throughout uh, the New Testament. Jesus is the head of the church. All right, that is the first part. And we are his body. We get to be his hands and feet here on earth. And so what that means is that as we go about our lives, as we go about our days, 
we are no longer just independently meant to walk through life. We are meant to walk through life as representatives of Jesus here on earth. Remember, Jesus is the head of the church. We are Christ's hands and feet. Are you guys following me? So if I see someone that is hurting, I go and give that person a hug, a comforting hug, because that's what Jesus would do for that person. When I see someone who is in need, I'm meant to go reach out a hand of support to them, to offer them help or finances or whatever it is they, they need, not on my own behalf, not as a representative of David or as a, one of the Palmer family, but as a representative of Christ. I am Jesus' hands and feet. When I speak, I'm not meant to speak whatever words come to my mind. I'm trying to think in my mind all right, what would Jesus say in this situation? That's how we're meant to operate. Paul is, is trying to communicate to us the importance of Christ. It's what he's been doing over and over and over again. And now within a church body, all of us matter. You may think or feel like you're insignificant. You're not. Every single one of us has a role to play. Jesus puts this body together with intention and with purpose, with you in mind. He's given you gifts and talents and passions. And, and, and if you don't reach out and give that hug or reach out that hand of help, if you don't say that word, whatever it is that God has given you the responsibility to do, then no one else will do that. We are his body. And we're important. I dream of a day when all of us within the church embrace that role because our community will never be the same if we do. But ultimately, what I want you to see is that even though, yes, you are important, you're not the head. That's Christ. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. He has said in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And now he is saying that Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and that he is preeminent over all things. Christ is preeminent. That means he holds the first place, the first rank. There is no king above him. If, if, if uh, you're a coach, he's the head coach. Okay, if you're a teacher, he's the principal or the superintendent or the king of all teachers. I don't really know what the thing is. Jesus is preeminent. There's nothing above him. And Paul is reiterating this over and over and over again. And so within our, our church, our goal needs to be to stay connected to the head. He's the one that matters. I can promise you this. I don't make a lot of promises, all right? But I can promise you this. You will never once walk into a, a Planet Fitness and see like a young 25-year-old healthy person running on a treadmill and their head is gone. If the body is detached from the head, it's not healthy, right? It's just not. It's what makes that, there's this stupid story. I used to be afraid of it. Do you guys ever hear that story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? Anyone know this? There's supposed to be this headless horseman and, and it's chasing this guy, 
But the thing that's so stupid about it is that the guy's head got cut off and they just stuck a pumpkin on his shoulders and we're like, yeah, he's still scary. No, without your head, there's nothing scary about it. If we're not attached to the head as a church, then we're not a healthy body. And so in everything that we do as believers, our goal must first and foremost be to keep Christ in his preeminent position. Everything that we are doing attached to him. It's why I encourage and and we talk about all of the time, prayer and reading scripture and staying connected to Jesus throughout our day. It's the only way for us to be healthy. Now, I'm not going to get into a ton of this because we don't have time, but there are, there are various beliefs about how a church body is structured. And I will tell you here right now at our church, I am not the head of our church. Jesus is the head of our church. There is no head of our church in some other state or in Vatican City, and, and, and we're subservient to them. Christ is the head of the church. We are a part of the body. We each have a role to play. And so my job, if you guys haven't noticed, or if you sit down and talk with me, what I do is I don't often, I mean, I will, I will give my advice or my thoughts. I will try to help from my perspective, but if it's my opinion, I tell you it's my opinion. My role is to point people to Jesus. And so if the time comes where you ever move away and you're looking for a good church, here's what I would tell you. Look for one that highlights the head of the body. Look for one that lifts up and magnifies Jesus. If the church has a celebrity as a pastor and everything that they seem to do is about glorifying him or raising him up, that's a red flag. It's about Jesus. He is the good shepherd. I get to serve as an under shepherd. He owns the vineyard. I'm a hired hand. Jesus speaks with authority. I seek to just echo his words to you as a mouthpiece for Christ here. Do you guys understand this point? In all things, Jesus must be preeminent. He is the head of the church's body. We are his hands and feet, and it's our job to stay connected to him. All right, and and now we're moving on to verse 19 and 20. And I promise you, we're almost through this heavy theology stuff and getting into more practical stuff here. 19 and 20, we see this, for in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is, I feel like Paul's last and final statement, his last and final attempt to let you know just where Jesus stands. He said he's the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the head of the church. He is preeminent. That means there's nothing above him or beyond him. And then he sums it all up and he says, and literally all the fullness of God dwells within Christ. He's just saying there is nothing in him that that is lacking as I read and studied on this passage, some of the, the people who commented or, or wrote books about this, they talked about Paul trying to echo something that happened in the Old Testament. Now, 
I love reading the Old Testament, but I know that not everyone follows along with all of that stuff. And so I'll just give you a brief summary. In the Old Testament, in, in the book, I think it's 2 Chronicles 7, King Solomon, who is the king of Israel, he goes to dedicate this temple that they've created, they've built for God's glory. Jerusalem is meant to be a model city. There's supposed to be a priesthood where, where Israel is set apart. They're different from the nations. This temple is going to be a place where people can come. It's like a lighthouse to the nations that draws people to know who God is. And Solomon prays this prayer over this temple and he asks God, please have your glory fall in your presence to dwell with us. And then what it says in 2 Chronicles 7 is that the glory of God comes down upon this temple in a cloud. And all the people, thousands and thousands of people are in awe because a cloud descends on that temple and fills every single little bit and corner of this temple. It's full. It's complete. God's presence fills every crevice and crack. It's hard for me to, to wrap my, pick, my, my, my head around that. But the idea is that there is no area in Jesus that, that's not full. We're not talking about like Thanksgiving where my stomach is full. Everything is full. It reminded me of that story in 2 Chronicles. We, man, this is kind of embarrassing. I'll admit this. We planted this church like 13 years ago. And it had been something we were praying about for, for years working hard toward praying for, and we finally moved to Grove City and we're meeting with people and we're, we're holding these weekly interest meetings where we talk about the church and we ask people to consider joining a launch team. And then we hold these preview services in the months leading up to actually launching where we're like testing out, uh, you know, how do you set up a church in a movie theater? Because we were at Regal Cinemas on Georgesville Road. How in the world do you do that? None of us knew. So we did these preview services. Well, the day finally came to launch our church. We had sent out flyers, knocked on doors, invited everybody we knew. Our families were coming down. People were from out of town. It was so stinking exciting. I could not sleep the night before. I woke up that morning. We got to the church. Everything was set up in like record time. And so I'm out in the lobby and it's maybe a half hour until the doors open and people start coming and the fire alarms start going off. And if you have ever heard like a loud fire alarm, this Regal Cinema took their fire safety very seriously. We'll just put it that way. You could have been deaf in hearing this fire alarm. It was insane. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. I was out in the lobby with a bunch of people. We started looking around. We went into the movie theater, which was going to house the service that day. And we opened up the doors in just a wall of fog and smoke or haze, whatever hit us. In somebody's excitement, they had turned on the, the haze machine and they left the theater, forgot to turn it off. And it just ran for like an hour. And I mean, you could not see your hand in front of your face. It got, it was in every corner. It was behind the screen. It went up into the ductwork, which set off all the alarms. That morning was insane. But there was not a corner, not an area, not a place in that theater where you could go to hide from that. It was so full. And what Paul is trying to communicate to us is that that is Jesus. He is not 
He is fully, totally, completely God. He knew that there would be people who would come and say that, yes, Jesus was good, but he was not God. Yes, Jesus was, was good. He may have come from God, but that's because God created him. No, Paul is trying to communicate that there is nothing that separates God and Jesus. They are God. He is the fullness of God. And within that fullness of God comes some, some incredible Man, some more imagery from Paul that reaches back to the Old Testament. He says that because of Christ, let me make sure I get this right. In Colossians 1, he says, because of Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Okay, so that seems... A little bit interesting, this idea of making peace. And it, it reminds me, once again, to this allusion to these Old Testament prophets. If you've ever read through these Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, over and over and over, they are warning the people of Israel that there's a problem between you and God. That there's an issue with that relationship. It's sin. Sin is that issue. Rebellion is that issue. Pride and greed, hatred, anger, murder, uh, selfishness, all of those things separate us from God. And these prophets would go and they would warn over and over and over, hey, there's a problem. Judgment's coming. The judgment of God is coming on you. The judgment of God is, and they would stand on the, the street corners and shout it and they would do all this crazy stuff to get your attention. And yet every time they would stand up, other prophets would stand up who were false prophets and would say, don't listen to them. God loves you. Don't listen to them. You're good just the way that you are. Don't listen to them. You're blessed. What a, don't listen to what these guys are saying. God is happy with you. And God responds in this famous passage in Jeremiah 6. God responds, and here's what God says. This is a quote. So that means that Jeremiah is conveying a prophecy that he hears from God. And he says, for, the, for from them, I'm sorry, for from the least to the greatest of them, every single person is greedy for unjust gain. Even the prophets and the priests, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wound of my people lightly. They are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I feel like we are in a culture that really has no problem telling you to love yourself. You are good. You have no need of reconciliation because God loves you just the way you are. And that is true, all right? That's true. But because of God's love for us, Paul says that the blood of the cross was necessary for that peace, to reconcile us. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read about this prophecy of a Messiah that was to come. And it says that we will be, he will be wounded, not because of his transgressions, but for my transgressions. That this Messiah would come and be crushed for my iniquities. That by his stripes, by his wounds, by the blood that flowed from him, he would bring peace and healing to me. 
And so Jesus, being the fullness of God, actually makes it possible for us to have peace with God because of his wounds. Now, I know that this is still technical, it's theological, but I want you to understand your position before God. Our position before God without Christ is alienation. We're going to hit that verse next, but we are alienated. The relationship is broken. There's nothing that we can do to be reconciled. But God's disposition toward us is mercy. Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus shows us how God loves us. His arms are open wide to us. That's his disposition toward us. And so because of God's love and his mercy toward us, we can have peace through the blood of the cross. But we have to be willing to recognize our wounds. We have to be willing to admit our need. We have to be willing to say, Christ, I need, I need something. I know this relationship is broken. We can't just simply say, I'm good as I am. We have to recognize our wound. Listen, you can be wounded and infected, and in, in, I know this is kind of gross imagery, but if you just cover it up with long pants and long sleeves and nobody, man, you could walk around and nobody would know that you're infected. But the best thing that you can do when you are wounded is to admit it and to seek help. And the best thing that we can do because we need reconciliation is to turn towards our Savior, to repent and to trust in the fullness of goodness and mercy of God to heal our wound. It is by the blood of the cross that we can have peace. Now, by his stripes, we were healed. So now we we finish it up. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister He turns from theology or just strictly theology and he says, and you. And so this morning, I want to do the same. This passage, this word, the next part of this, it's for you. You might as well insert your name and David and Jera and Corey, you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind and doing evil deeds, you are now reconciled thanks to Jesus Christ. This idea of being alienated from God, is, it, it means that there is, it's not like the relationship's bad. It, it's like there's, a, there's the grand canyon between the relationship. There's nothing that you can do. You're completely alienated. Paul says that we're then hostile in our minds toward the things of God. And I love it when scripture proves true in the world, like when it's so obvious, because the immediate thing that I think of is like, yeah, that's, that's like atheists. I've never met people that are so mad about something they don't think exists. I haven't. I don't see people making YouTube videos about how unicorns don't exist and you're an idiot for believing in them. And yet there are so many angry, hostile people to the very idea of God. And the result of that hostility and that alienation is that we're just evil. We do evil things. 
We sin, we lie, we're greedy, we're prideful, we're angry. And that's you. That's me. And that's what makes me so glad that Jesus is our reconciliation. Because it's only through Christ that we can be brought from hostility into holiness. It's only through Christ that we can go from alienated and now we're above reproach. It's only through Christ that we can become, go from a blasphemer to be called blameless. I can't do that for myself. You can't do that for yourself. It's only through Jesus. And because of that, this is why Paul says he is preeminent. Jesus deserves first place in my life. He deserves first place in yours as well. He has done what no one else could do. No matter how hard I tried, I can't go from hostile to holy. No matter how hard I try, I can't go from a blasphemer into blameless. It's only through the blood of the cross. And so Jesus deserves first place. That's what preeminent means, man. It means that he is first And when he is in first place, our lives reflect his glory. We shine a light on the head of the church. We we function as his hands and feet. The life that we live is better with Jesus in that first place. Make Jesus first. First in your life. First First in your marriage, put Christ first. Put him first in your parenting and with your family. Put Jesus first in your career and with your coworkers. Man, make Jesus first with your, with your life and with your leisure and with your sports and with your music and with what you watch and what you listen to and what you wear. Make Jesus first. Make him preeminent. Give him first place with your time. Give him first place with your finances. Jesus deserves that because Christ has done what I could never do in order to purchase for me something that I can never earn. And man, I'm glad I know him. Jesus deserves first place in our lives. He is the head of the church. He is the fullness of God and he is my reconciliation. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of worship to the God who has done what only he can do. But before that, I want to encourage you to reflect on your own life. To ask yourself the question whether or not you have been giving Jesus first place. I know that it is so easy to take back control of our lives. I do it all the time. I have things that I want and things that I want to do and and I don't always want to ask Jesus his opinion because frankly, I'm afraid that he might tell me no. And yet, man, he deserves first place. And in fact, I would say this, our lives will never be what God designed them to be until we surrender that place of authority in my life and say that I'm not in charge, it's Jesus. Jesus, you are in charge. If you need to repent, repent right now. Ask God for forgiveness. 
for those of you who are in here searching and seeking and trying to decide who this Jesus guy is, man, I want to encourage you with this passage. From the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it says that he was wounded for our transgressions and it's, it's by those stripes that you can be healed. But we have to admit that we have a need. We have a wound that needs healing. And if you want to start a relationship with Christ, if you want that wound to be healed, if you want to be reconciled to the God who created you and loves you, you can do that right now. Just talk to him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that the death that you died on the cross paid for the sins that I've committed. Please forgive me. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you and I want to follow you all the days of my life now and forever. I need you. If you made that decision this morning to give your life to Christ, I can tell you that when I was 16 years old, I made that decision as well and there's never been a better decision that I made and there are hundreds of people in this church right now that would tell you the exact same thing but we want to walk with you. I want to know that you made that decision so that I can give you resources and encourage you and pray for you. And so would you, before you leave, make sure that you stop at the connect area over by the coffee in the lobby, or you can go to decision.church. Let us know about that decision that you made. God, we love you. I'm sorry for taking control of my own life Lord, for not giving you first place in my time and, and in my finances and, and Lord, in my love. But I want to surrender, Jesus. You are preeminent. You are deserving. You are God, the fullness of God. And so I submit my life to you. You are the only one that could take me from hostile to holy, Lord. You're the only one that could say to this blasphemer that I now call you blameless. You are the only one who could bridge that gap that alienated us and now say that I am above reproach. God, you are the only one and you are worthy of our worship. And so this morning, we worship you. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.